Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. So I have a question real quick. This is like a poll. This is a church poll. So we try very hard to figure out this volume thing in this gym. So last week, it was very loud. We found out that this speaker was much louder than this speaker, and so it kind of was like doing weird stuff in the room. But I just want to poll from you guys now. What, how many of you, like in the back more per se, was the volume good? Was it quiet? Was it too loud? I don't know. I need some feedback. We're trying to, what about everyone in the middle? Was it good this weekend? I see a lot of goods. Okay. Because in this gym with these beautiful acoustics, it's often very difficult. And with setting up every Sunday morning, since we're so established in this gym throughout the week, it can be difficult. And so we're really trying to get a gauge on like where you guys are at, because we don't want it blaring loud, but we also don't want it so quiet that you can't hear in the back. So it's kind of this balance game. So this week was good. Okay, I see a lot of goods. That's good. All right, perfect. The other thing is, man, you guys are real close to me this week with this whole Stillwater setup. You better watch out. You're in firing zone right here for this spittle. It may be coming. But so glad you guys are here. If you're new with us, my name is Luke. We are actually going to take a break from Ephesians leading up to Christmas. And we're going to be in John chapter 17 this morning. When I think of Christmas, I think really of this, God making a move to display his love to the world. I mean, really, that's what we celebrate in Christmas, around the Christmas season, is that God in his love made a move towards us, sinful, broken people, to redeem what had been broken. And the amazing thing about this is he has redeemed, but then he has also called us as believers in Christ to be a part of his plan. And if we look at scripture, as we're going to see today in various places in scripture, that God uses unity to showcase his love to a hurting world. Unity. It's really this theme that we can see all throughout scripture in different areas and different aspects of scripture. D.L. Moody once said this, I have never yet known the spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. See, where the spirit of God is working in the world, there is unity. And God uses unity to display his love to all those who are in hearing and watching distance. John chapter 17 is really this remarkable passage. Jesus, if you know much about scripture, is about to go to the cross. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed. And he's about to hang on the cross. The whole reason he came, the whole reason we celebrate Christmas, Jesus was coming to the fulfillment of this time. And if you can imagine what would be going through your mind if you were Jesus and you knew what was about to take place, that you were going to have this crown of thorns jammed upon your head, that you were going to be beaten with this cat of nine tails and your flesh ripped off of your back, just shredded, blood just pouring out, knowing that this is what you, were, you had come to do, but this anxiety of what was about to take place. Other places in scripture, we actually see that when Jesus was in the garden praying, he began to sweat drops of blood because he was so anxious and so in this like agony of what was about to take place. 
Now, the amazing thing is we have to understand this to see the prayer that Jesus is praying here. So this prayer is known as the high priestly prayer. And Jesus was praying this right before he knew what was to come. The context of this prayer, we can see that Jesus talks about this great exchange of glory that he has with his father. If we know anything about the Trinity, they, the Trinity is one, but there was this exchange of glory. One was always trying to outserve the other. One was always exchanging this glory with the other. And Jesus is praying for those who had believed in the reason that he had come. But then he begins to pray for those who would believe, a.k.a. you and me. Keep in mind... Jesus is about to go to the cross, and I want you to ponder this for a second. If you knew your death sentence was right around the corner, if you knew that you were the one that was going to hang on the cross for your sin, what would be your last prayer? What would be the last thing on your mind? For me, it would probably not be that the Seahawks beat the 49ers this week. It would probably not be that I would shoot a 400-inch bull and maybe even catch a giant redfish next time I go to South Texas. Really what would be on my mind is the thing that is the most important to me in that moment, and Jesus is doing the same. The remarkable thing about this prayer is right before Jesus, as he closes it, as he begins to move towards the cross, he prays for something, that we would be one as they are one. He begins to pray for unity. This idea of unity, that we would be unified to God himself through redemption, through the blood of Christ. So as he begins to conclude his prayer, we see really the crux and the meat of everything. It's the conclusion right before Jesus goes to the cross and he prays that we would be one. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one." I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. I want us to see something to set this text up. In this text, in the Greek, there are six hinna clauses in three verses. All you have to know about a hinna clause is it's a purpose clause. So Jesus, and hinna clauses are not that common in most texts, especially with this many in such a short amount of time. Jesus is driving home something. He's saying the purpose to which I have come, the purpose to which I'm going to the cross, the purpose to which I'm praying this is that they would be one as we are one, that they would be unified with us, that we would find unity. Jesus is saying that's the purpose of it all. He's praying that we would be one. And this idea of unity can be seen in various places around Scripture. Think about it. Marriage, Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh. How about the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 
Paul describes the church as one body, many parts. How about friendship? Psalm 133, the Bible says, sweet and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We can see it with God in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, unity is very near to the heart of God. And I want us to get this before we see really what I think Jesus is saying in here. Is something that is so near to the heart of God also ought to be near to ours as well. Jesus, right before he went to the cross, spent time praying for us that we would be one as they are one. Therefore, we would do well to take notice. So what do we see in this text? I think there's three things that we see that I want to spend the few minutes that we have. And you say, few? Yeah, right, Luke. You're already like, you're like always 45 to 50 minutes. To which I'm like, yeah, but I try to go shorter. There's just so much in Scripture, right? And you're thinking, but it seems like 30. Oh, good. Well, that's my goal. But anyway, number one is this. Jesus prayed for unity, so should we. I want you to think about this. Anything Jesus is praying for, the devil is fighting against. Think about it. If Jesus is spending this much time praying for that we would be one, we know without a shadow of a doubt that the devil is fighting harshly against it. He does not want unity in this church, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your business, in your friendships, wherever. The devil doesn't want unity. Why? Because God uses unity to display his love to the world, he said. So if we are divided and we are disunified, I don't even know if that's a word, but if we're divided, when the world looks at us, they can't see the love of God. If your marriage is divided, your marriage is speaking far more clearly about God's love for the world than the words coming out of your mouth. Jesus is saying that he is fighting for unity, that he is praying for unity. We ought to do the same. See, the devil is fighting against a unified church. The devil is fighting against a unified marriage. The devil is fighting against a unified family, unified relationships. Why? Because like I said, it's the way that God shows his love to a hurting world and the devil hates this message with everything inside of him. If he can divide, he can conquer. But if we are unified, look out because the gates of hell cannot be fractured. See, Jesus has called us to be a part of his plan. But we have to be unified. We have to stand in this unity because when we are together in your marriage, I'm not just saying this church, in your marriage and relationships and your friendships, whatever, it's very hard for the devil to pick you off. How does the devil pick you off? Well, 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. For he knows that a house divided cannot stand, Mark 3, 25. I don't know if you've ever hunted lions. I have a few times. I've never been successful, but I have been hunted by a lion a couple times. It's not a fun experience. One time in Bozeman, I was walking down this ridge, tracking an elk, and 
On the way back, I circle back, and there's two sets of lion tracks following mine all the way. I never once knew where the lion was. I was hunting whitetails down the swan one day, and I was coming out of my spot, and I looked down, and there's this lion crouched watching a deer. The deer had no idea the lion was there. I saw the lion. The deer didn't see the lion, and the deer took off after the lion. I was driving down the swan this spring bear hunting, and this rabbit comes like ripping out of the brush, and right on its tails, this lion, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like from me to you, this lion grabs this rabbit and is out of there as quick as, I mean, you couldn't even blink. But that's how the devil works. The devil is sneaky. He prowls around like a roaring lion, and when we least expect him, he pounces. And one way that lions like to hunt, especially in Africa, is to pull one of their prey away from the herd. It's very hard for them to kill a group of wildebeest or a group of gazelle or whatever they're hunting if they are in a herd. But once one gets pulled away, the lion can pounce and kill. And that's what the devil is trying to do to you and to me. Pull us away, divide us, pull us away from each other so that he can kill. I have a question. When is the last time you prayed for unity in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, and even this church? And I don't mean like a little popcorn prayer. I mean like a prayer the way that Jesus prayed, with the same urgency, knowing that he was about to go hang on the cross, and those were the last things on his mind. Oh, Father, would they be one as we are one? When is the last time that you have really prayed for unity in your marriage, if you're married? Marriage can be hard. I'm guilty of it. I don't pray for it all the time. But like, if Jesus felt the need to pray that, how much more should I? So that Caroline and I would be united so that the devil cannot come against us. How about relationships? Is there a relationship that's, with, that's in friction? When's the last time you really, really, really prayed that God would unify your heart to his so that he might begin to heal a relationship and unify it? When is the last time you prayed for unity in this church? Because I promise you the devil wants to divide this church and he likes to do it over little petty things. But that's how he works. He tries to pull you away so that you begin to talk about this. Oh, I don't really like this. And I can't believe Luke said that. I'm sure I've said lots of things you said that about. I'm sorry, not really. But some things I am sorry for. Some I'm not. But like all these little petty things, and the devil likes to use that to begin to divide the church. Because if he can divide, he thinks he can conquer. But if we are united, I mean, he can't touch us. If your marriage is united, it's very hard for him to attack it. If your relationships are united, it's very difficult for him to weasel himself in because we are united. See, Jesus prayed for unity, so should we. I just want you to think about that this week. If you're having friction with your spouse or relationship, or somewhere else, rather than first jumping down their throat, maybe you ought to come to a place where you're like, oh God, would you please fix me first and show me something about myself that needs to be changed? Would you unify my heart to yours so that you can begin to unify this relationship the way that you designed it to be? 
Because often we start doing all these things for the sake of unity, but we have to see that unity is not self-generated. It's not Luke-generated. It's Jesus-generated, and it's Jesus-sustained. Only he can bring unity. So we ought to pray for that. We ought to be on our face for that. And not just, oh, God, would you bring unity to my marriage, please? No, like, how about you get in your closet and you get on your face and you begin to pray until maybe you even start weeping as God breaks you of yourself so that this, what God has designed, might be unified. Like, pray with urgency because that's what Jesus did for us. Number two is this. Humility precedes unity. Did you know that the Godhead models humility? Did you notice what Jesus said? That they may be one as we are one, verse 22. One of the most amazing things about the Godhead to me is this, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly one, yet completely distinct in their roles. And you're like, Luke, how can that be? You're like, I'm like, I don't know. I just know that's how it is. It bends my mind too. Think about it. Three in one, three persons, completely one, yet distinct in their roles. The son does not operate or assume the role of the father. The father does not assume the role of the son. And the Holy Spirit doesn't assume the role of the father or the son. They are completely distinct, yet they are One, see, what we see is there's this great exchange of glory. And Jesus says that in John 17. Every one of them is trying to outserve the other. Every one of them is trying to bring glory to the other. The Holy Spirit is to bring glory to the Son. The Son's role is to bring glory to the Father. There's this giant exchange of glory. And this cannot happen if there is not humility. It just can't. I want you to see something. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, you can't give glory somewhere else if you lack humility. And we can see this humility in the Godhead as Jesus is having this interaction with his father because he's always giving glory. They're always giving glory to the other, which is what? Not self-serving, other-serving. We can see it in the very nature of the Trinity that God himself is serving the other, is distinct in their role, yet they are completely one. But get this, this exchange of glory was also given to you and me if you are a believer in Christ. Look at it, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, this is crazy to me, I have given to them, why? That they may be one even as we are one. So I want you to think about this for one second. If we have been given the same glory that is being exchanged between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, We cannot be self-serving either because by very nature, God himself is not self-serving but other-serving. We have been given this same kind of glory and this glory by nature is humble. See, we cannot have unity without first having humility. Caroline and I have many incidences like this. 
I mean, I am like one of the most selfish people on the planet. I don't know if you can relate in your marriage, but like a lot of times it's what's in it for me, right? There's been many times when Caroline has said something and I'm like, I, for some reason I took it wrong and I jump at her or do something, say something stupid, and then God really convicts me like, hey, Luke, you should not do that. Like, she's your wife. You need to love her and cherish her. So what do I do? I go and apologize and say, babe, man, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me because I really messed up. But you know what happens in that moment? We can then be unified again, and that takes humility. The easiest thing to do is say something and just roll over in bed and go to sleep, and oh, we'll deal with it in the morning. No, we can't do that because unity stems from humility And we see it in the Godhead, others serving. I'm here to serve my wife. I'm here to cherish my wife. The Son is here to give glory to the Father, serve the Father. The Holy Spirit is here to give glory to the Son, to serve the Son. And we have have received the same kind of glory. I want you to hear this. Humility in the church and relationships is this. In spite of your differing opinions, being willing to lay down your preferences for the sake of standing united under one banner, the banner of Jesus and Jesus alone. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Sounds a whole lot like the relationship of the Godhead. Sounds a whole lot like the relationship of this exchange of glory, of giving glory to the other. So I have a question. What if the people of God surrendered their preferences on the altar of purpose. Not just in this church, but in your marriage, in your relationships, in your business. What if we laid down our preferences on the altar of purpose? What is purpose? Purpose is this, that the name of Jesus would be lifted high and that the world would know the love of a good God. But often our preferences get in the way of that purpose. In a room this size, I guarantee you, many of you would do things differently than me. And I would do things differently than you. I mean, it's inevitable, and that's not bad. It's just how we're wired. Like, preferences are a beautiful thing as long as they're kept in check and they don't get us away from purpose. God can do amazing things when a bunch of people who lay down some preferences for the sake of his purpose. God can do an amazing thing in a marriage when you would just say, okay, yeah, this is not my default, but to outserve the other, to give glory to the other, I will lay down some of my preferences for the sake of his purpose, a unified marriage. God will do amazing things in relationships if you will lay down some of your preferences and just say, okay, God, this, yeah, this is yours, but I'm going to outserve the other because that's what Jesus himself modeled. Jesus came to serve and not be served. But often we flip that and we think, oh, the whole world revolves around me being served and my preferences. Jesus said, no, I've actually flipped that on its head. And I would do amazing things if you would lay down your preferences on the altar of purpose that my name would be lifted high above all else, that the world may know that I am a good, good God. See, 
This is the exact thing the devil is coming against. Unity and purpose. What's he going to do? He's going to try to divide the church, and he's going to try to divide marriages. But here's an amazing thing. I want us to think about this for a second. Humility is this. Recognizing that God speaks to other people too. (laughs) Sometimes we like to play the Pope, right? Oh, God only speaks to me. I have all the answers. Yeah, babe, are you kidding me? He could have never said that to you. God only speaks to me. That's not humility. Humility is realizing that God can speak to other people too. And when we realize that, we can lay down some of our preferences for the sake of his purpose. That we would be unified. That the church would be unified. That our marriages would be unified. That our relationships would be unified. And pause for a second. If you're in this room and you're not married, or you're going to be married or you desire to be married, and you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me, it actually probably applies to you more so than anyone else because it's a great practice ground to start it now. It's very difficult to really change this once you're in, stuck in your ways and going down a lane. Work on serving other people. Work on giving this exchange of glory, not this selfish view, but man, God, would you really show me your heart so that when you bring the person to me that I'm to marry, that I can outserve them, that I can outlove them, that I can lay down some of my preferences for the sake of your purpose for a unified marriage. Maybe rather if you're in this room and you're single and you're like, well, is it ever going to happen to me? Just think of it in this way. Count it as God's blessing that you're hearing it this morning because it can spare a whole lot of heartache later. If we can get this idea of what it looks like to live in unified relationships. A couple questions with this and then the third point and then we'll be done. Here's a question. Is there any area in your life this morning that you are clinging tighter to your preferences than his purpose? Maybe in this church, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in a business. But is there any area in your life this morning, I mean, only you know, that you know you're just like, like grasping on to your preferences and you just don't want to let it go. And it's like, yeah, God, you can have that, but you got to break my fingers to get them open because I'm going to hold them so tight that I don't want to let them go. If you will open your hand of preference and you will cling to purpose, God will do remarkable things. The problem is we do the opposite. We cling to preference And we're like, yeah, God, this is mine. You can have everything but this. And I don't really care about this purpose thing. I just want my preferences. Did you know that your preferences will all of a sudden come kind of alive when you just open your hand to God's purpose? God does things in our heart when we are here to for him, for his glory, that the world may know the love of a good God. If we can open our hand to preference and if we can cling to purpose, God will do amazing things. So if you are clinging tight to preference this morning in any area of life, will you be humble enough to switch your grip from preference to purpose? Will you? The choice is yours. We're not created as robots. God gives us free will. He gives us opportunity. He gives us choice. 
And so often we spend so much time clinging to our preferences that we completely miss his purpose. And when we miss his purpose, the world looks on and says, why would I ever want to serve a God like that? They're the, <laughs> they're the greatest bigot and angry and frustrated person I've ever met because they're all about themselves. When God is not all about himself, the Trinity itself is this exchange of glory to outserve the other. And we were created in that image, and so we are to reflect the same. What are you clinging to this morning that you need to let go of? Think about it for 10 seconds. Is there something you're clinging to that you need to let go of this morning? for the sake of the glory of Almighty God, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your relationship, for the sake of your future marriage and your future relationship. What do you need to release to him so that he can work? Number three is this. We see it right in the text. God uses unity to reveal his love to a hurting world. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become, first time we see it, not just one, but perfectly one. Perfectly. This can only happen through Jesus. And then he says this, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. If someone were to look at veneration this morning, or if someone were to look at your marriage this morning, or if someone were to look at your family, or maybe even your own life, would they see God's love for the world, or would they see someone who's angry, prideful, and self-serving? See, perfect love, Jesus, is not self-serving. So who are we to think that that should be the case for us? Because God uses unity to reveal his love to a hurting world. With this church, man, my prayer is that we would be so in love with who God is that we would be so unified under one mission, under one purpose, and it's not veneration, it's the glory of God. That we would be so unified in that that the world would look on and be like, what in the heck? Like, I don't understand it. Those people love so stinking well. Like, I can't even go to work because this person is just like out serving me. Like, I don't even deserve it, and I'm just a complete jerk to them, but for some reason, they just keep loving me. For some reason, they just keep serving me, and they, I don't deserve it one bit. There's got to be something to this person. What is that something? That God loves a hurting world, and he uses unity to display it. If someone's looking at your marriage, they ought to see God's love for them. Did you know that God modeled marriage after himself, that there, it should be perfectly unified, yet man and woman are distinct in their roles? That's the same thing as the Trinity. It's the same thing as the Godhead. 
And when that functions in a healthy way where your spouse, you're out serving your spouse and your spouse is out serving you and you're trying to out love your spouse and your spouse is trying to out love you, that brings unity. And then the world looks and they're like, what the heck? I don't even understand. I'm on my fifth marriage and it always falls apart. There's got to be something to this. If we as a church would stand united on the things that are near to God's heart, I'm telling you, we would accomplish what we desire this church to be, that if veneration ever ceased to exist, the Flathead Valley would deeply miss us. Not because of Beast Feast or Sports Camp or, I mean, they're all amazing. No, but because we love well. Because Marriages are becoming more unified through what God is doing here. They're not falling away. They're actually unifying. Relationships are being unified. Your own life with God is just drawing near and you are being brought near and unified to him. When that happens, the byproduct is the world sees the love of a great God. And we don't do it. Jesus does it through us. Did you know that unity is neither self-generated nor self-sustained? It is Jesus-generated and Jesus-sustained. And oneness is God's tool that allows the world to see what he has done and what he is doing. See, perfect unity, the unity Jesus speaks of, can never be found even through the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. I could be the greatest leader the world has ever seen, which, newsflash, I am far from. But I can't bring unity to God's church. I can't bring unity to your marriage. And I can't bring unity to your relationships. And I can't change what God is doing through you. Only Jesus can do it. Only God can do it. And to do it, sometimes we have to open our hand of preference and cling to his purpose above all else. We have to say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I know one thing, that your heart is for unity, and I am going to pursue after it. How do you pursue it? You pursue the heart of God. You pursue Jesus with everything that you have. See, unity is not found through the greatest leader on the planet. Unity is found in the perfect lamb who was slain. The one who came to unify all things to himself, Ephesians 1.10, Jesus, the King of glory. That's where unity comes from. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're new to church or if you're new to Christianity or if you don't know who Jesus is, I want you to know that this is the gospel. That God has come to unify what has been severed and divided, sin. Sin divides, sin destroys. And the reason we're moving to celebrate Christmas is, like I said earlier, it showcases God's love for people that he came to bring near and into his fold those who were far away, that we would be united in him for his glory and his name. The gospel is that none of us deserve Christ. We all actually were beelining towards hell. Separation from God. We were all born that way. It's not that Jesus came to just like pull us from it. He, we were all headed that way and our only hope was him and our only hope is professing his name and believing that we were divided, that he can unify. 
He saved us from the direction that we were headed. It would be like this. If I was walking down a trail that I'd never known before, and at the end of this trail, it's this row, there's this giant cliff, and it falls off a thousand feet, and I'm just blindfolded, and a guy says, all right, start walking, Luke. So I'm blindfolded, and I just keep walking, not knowing that I'm headed to the edge of a cliff, and at one moment, I'm going to take a step off of the cliff and fall to my death. The only way for me to avoid that is for someone to save me. Someone to get in my path and say, Luke, you're headed that way, but I have done something that you can't do. I'm grabbing you, you blindfolded, lost person, and I'm going to pull you from that and pull you to safety. And that's what Jesus has done. Every one of us were headed for the edge of the cliff. And God in his love, the reason we celebrate Christmas, is he made a way. He sent Jesus, his only son, to save us from ourselves and save us from sin and save us from death. All we have to do is choose to accept his help. And if you're in this room this morning and you've never accepted his help, I just want you to know you're headed for the cliff and at one point you will take your last. But the love of a good God is this, that he wants to snatch you from that path and give you everlasting life. And all you have to do is believe. That's the goodness of the gospel. That God has come to unify what sin has divided. The great revivalist preacher Leonard Ravenhill said this, You never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church is on fire, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know it. Now, he's not talking. The church is literally burning to the ground with flames. He's saying if the church is on fire with the power of the Holy Spirit, with a unity that the devil cannot snatch, if a church like that is on fire with God moving in such a way, you don't even have to advertise it because the community already knows it because we are doing what he has called us to do. Oh, that that would be us. And I want to tell you, it doesn't start in this room. It starts in your home. It starts in my home. It doesn't start in this gym. It starts with your marriage. It starts with outserving your spouse. It starts with learning what it is to live this selfless life the way that God modeled it so that when your spouse comes, you can enter into it. It doesn't start in this gym. It starts in your business with everyone that you're interacting with. It starts there. And then the community will begin to know that God is doing something that we cannot do and they are attracted to it. My fear often is this, that the Flathead Valley is not attracted yet to what God is doing here. And not because of Sunday morning but because we are not completely unified in our relationships, in our businesses, with our friends, with our family, with our spouses. Because when they see that, if they're not seeing the love of God for people, then we have missed it. Here's my prayer. Not coming down against you because I don't do it perfectly at all. But oh, would we pray for that like Jesus prayed in John 17. Would we beg God to make us that kind of a people so that when people think and see veneration, they don't see the gym, they see the people of God rising up who are unified for one reason, that Jesus Christ may be exalted because he uses our unity to display his love to a hurting world. Are you unified?
is your relationships selfless or selfish? Are your preferences your own or to outserve the other? Because unity does not come from our own, it comes to outserve. That's unity. And we, we can't do it on our own strength, but we can pray that God would do that in us. See, as we wrap up, I pray that veneration may be known as a place where God is on the move. As a place that is filled with humble and unified people. And like I said, this starts in the home. We're hurting people are being restored. I never want to be a country club. I want to be a hospital for the sick. Country clubs, people just come for their coffee and their beverages and their martinis and their golf game and everything's buttoned up and everything's about them and my, I pay my dues to become a member at this country club so you ought to serve me and I just kind of exist in this little place and it, the world really all revolves around me and I'm all good. The problem is people in country clubs aren't good, they're just masquerading as good. The hospital is where people go when they know they can't help themselves when they know they need someone to touch them, when they know that they're on their last lifeline and they just say, I just need help, would we be that kind of a people that are honest enough to say, I don't got it figured out and my little country club has all been a masquerade. No, I'm hurting and I'm in need and I need God to break through. If we could be that type of people that were actually open and honest because we all struggle, God would begin to unify and do things but he can't do it when we're all puffed up with pride and think that we have life all figured out when we walk through the door and then we walk out of the church room and we get back into our argument that we were in with our spouse when we, before we walked in the door. You ever been there? I have. <laughs> oh, would we be a hospital for the sick where the hurting can be restored and those who are on their last breath could find life. Where hearts of stone are turning to hearts of flesh a place that is united under the banner of Jesus. I don't know if you notice, I hope you do, because there's three of them in this building. As you walk out, there's a sign of our values, and the last one is this, that we are one. We stand united under the banner of Jesus. It's very intentional, also, that it starts with, we are a people of grace. We give that which we have received. None of us have earned it or deserved it. But the last one is that we are one. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. And if we would stand united under the banner of Jesus and we would lean into him, God would do remarkable things, not just in their church, this church, but in your marriage. But for this to happen, remember, Jesus prayed for unity, so should we. This morning, will you commit to praying for unity in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, for your future relationships? and in this church. I'm asking that you would do that, and I'm asking that you would keep veneration in your prayers for unity, because as God begins to move, the devil wants to destroy, and the attack is real. The attack on me and my family is real. On the staff and pastors is real. Would you commit to praying for unity in all these places and watch what God may do? Number two is humility precedes unity. Will you be humble enough to switch your grip from preference to purpose this morning in whatever sphere God is speaking to you in? And number three is God uses unity to reveal his love to a hurting world. 
When someone looks at you, do they see God's love for people? Do they? I've had to reflect on this. When people look at me, do they see my love for people or do they see someone that's in a hurry and doesn't have time for people and I'm super busy, like a lot of you in this room, but it's not an excuse because God uses unity to display his love to a hurting world and sometimes we miss it. See, he receives the most glory when his people are the most unified and when his people are unified, the world sees the love of the Father. If the band wants to come up, we're going to wrap it up. I want to leave us with this. Paul commissions the church in Philippi with something as he begins, as he leaves them. With, but I want you to hear this prayer as a prayer for our church, as a commission for our church, as a commission for your marriage and your relationships and your future relationships. And listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.27. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In your marriage, are you standing firm in one spirit and one mind? going side by side for the faith of the gospel or is one of you over here and one of you is over here and you don't really know where you're going but it's completely divided, God is into unity. In your relationships, are you standing side by side with one another, striving for the faith of the gospel? Whatever it is in your life, may this be us. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christmas is coming. And there are people that will enter this building that will hear the radio ad or hear an invite or whatever that would never, ever, ever set foot in a building and they don't even know what they're missing. They are hurting and in need of hope and they don't know where to find it. Will you be unified? Will we be unified together and invite someone? I mean, how selfish to have the greatest gift the world has ever experienced and not want to share that. My worry is that if we're not careful, the natural tendency is to become a country club and what we like our small church and we don't really want it to grow because with growth comes all these other issues and blah, 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 blah. And listen, I'm not saying, I'm standing here saying, man... This is all gauged by numbers. No, what I'm saying is that there are people in this community right now who are sitting in a hotel room about to take their life and they don't know where to turn and we have the answer. A living hope. But often we get so into our preferences that we don't even want to serve it because our preferences become our purpose. God is saying this morning, release your preferences. Cling to my purpose. Would the world see the love of a father? And it comes through a unified people. It's two weeks away. Who are you inviting? Who's your one more? Because I'm telling you, 
Life and death are in the balance. And eternity is more real than this chair. And not just eternity. Someone is not experiencing life, a living hope, because they don't know Jesus and he's the only one that you can run to to find it. Two weeks away, four and six, who are you inviting? And as we close, I have a question. What are you going to release this week that you have been clinging to for far too long? What kind of a preference have you been clinging to that you've just refused to let go of? Maybe you're holding something against your spouse. Maybe you're holding someone against a fr- something against a friend. or It can be anything. I, I mean, it's endless. But I promise you that if you will release your preferences and cling to his purpose, God will do an astounding thing. But you have to let it go. God is into unity. Would we pursue unity because that's why Jesus came that the world may know the love of the Father. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you have done. God, I'm astounded at what you have done for me. I can't even get over it. When I really stop and think that I was the one headed towards the cliff, blindfolded, not even knowing where I was headed, God, you swooped in and saved me from what I could not save myself from, life or death. And God, you stole me from death to give me life. And God, if there's someone in this room that's headed for the cliff and they've never professed faith in Christ, would today be the day? Would they confess with their mouth that you are Lord, Jesus, and believe in your heart, God, that you raised your son from the dead so that they may rise to newness of life? And it's not about what they can do, it's about what you have done. Would you make it real? And for us in this room, God, that are clinging to preferences, that are keeping us from your purpose, would we release them this morning so that you can do what only you can do, God, so that you can bring unity so that the world and the Flathead Valley around us would see your love for them and your love for people. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.